Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 85. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing humble apologetics with Dr. John Stackhouse, who is Samuel J. Michalaski Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University in New Brunswick, Canada. He's also the author of Humble Apologetics, Defending the Faith Today with Oxford University Press, and Can I Believe? Christianity for the Hesitant, also with Oxford University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Josh and Amber, what did you two make of our conversation with Dr. Stackhouse? I just appreciated Dr. Stackhouse's approach to apologetics. It really boiled down to not defending the faith, not fighting, not debating. It really boiled down to how can we have relational conversations that make sense and present who Jesus is and the challenge that he is. And, uh, and recognize also that Christianity has got some things in it that are difficult to walk through. And just throwing that at them and talking at people is not the way, but talking with people and having that uh, dialogue of mutual respect is, is a powerful thing. In this series, we've talked about some of the philosophical and theological problems within the uh, current evangelical enterprise and culture that we see, particularly in the United States. In this episode, we dug more into some of the ethical issues with it, looking specifically at the ethics of platforming, of popular kind of self-proclaimed apologists, some of the strategies and tactics that can really backfire later um, when students realize that maybe things weren't set up quite accurately for them um, in, in the conferences that they attended when they were younger and how that can induce a kind of crisis of faith on its own. And so... Dr. Stackhouse helped us think about what are the problems with that from both the apologist side and then also how to be discerning about the kinds of voices that we listen to. I also really appreciated the discussion on the driving forces behind the apologetic enterprise, especially in apologetic circles and thinking in particular about hell and how that might motivate an apologist to be persuasive in particular fields, especially thinking about this because Dr. Stackhouse does not hold to a traditional view of hell and hearing how that does not lessen the motivation for him at all in his apologetic endeavors. All right, and here's our discussion with Dr. Stackhouse. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Stackhouse. Good to see you. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your book, Humble Apologetics. What do you set out to do that's different in the field of apologetics other than perhaps trying not to be a jerk about it? Well, not being a jerk about it is actually a pretty high value for me when it comes to apologetics. There seem to be too many people who have set themselves up, particularly as professional apologists, who seem to be working out their psychological issues in real time in front of actual audiences. You feel like saying, dude, like see a therapist, see a pastor, you know, get a girlfriend, like something, but don't keep 
trying to strut your stuff here, because uh, so many of them, uh, there's this kind of machismo in apologetics that, uh, and apologetics is not supposed to be a martial art, right? I mean, Christian discourse sometimes has to be feisty. Sometimes it has to be strong. Jesus often used very strong words, but he used those strong words mostly for well-educated religious opponents. With anybody who is at all interested in inquiry, Jesus was very patient, very kind, very interesting. And he didn't see them as antagonists, but as conversation partners. So my concern is to try to offer a distinctly different way of approaching apologetics that humbly offers a gift to our neighbors rather than seeing them as opponents to be mown down in the name of the Lord. I think what you've identified is definitely a problem in, in particular, the sort of uh, Western, particularly U.S., Anglo-Saxon kind of world in the contemporary apologetics project. Um, and I'm wondering why you think it took on that tone and, and why it sort of assumed those particular kinds of goals. Is that different from the history of apologetics? Is that different on a global scale when we're talking about um, giving a defense for the belief, the hope that we have? It seems like in the States in particular, that verse, give a defense for the hope that you have, it, it takes on this very militaristic kind of tone. Um, why, why do you think that happened? I think it is a good question, Amber. And I think that if we look back in the history of apologetics, we find that some of the greats didn't feel that they were necessarily at war with their interlocutors. Blaise Pascal gives us his great notes toward a book he never got around to writing. Uh, the Pensée give gives us all these wonderful thoughts that are challenging and they do engage in cultural critique. They do offer a strong argument, but you have the feeling he really is a partner in conversation with the people he's trying to deal with. We think of uh, Thomas Aquinas writing his lesser known work, the Summa Contra Gentiles. Well, this is a handbook for missionaries going to the Muslim world. And these are meant to be arguments to help smart Muslims see that Christians can be smart too, and may even have some things to offer their rich civilization. Because of course, in the 13th century, the dominant civilization is the Islamic one, not the European one. So I, I do think that it is an artifact of the post-fundamentalist militant mentality in the U.S. that casts apologetics in this light. And even if you look at a country like India, where there are a lot of also fairly aggressive apologists there too, they tend to come from the Anglo-American missionary tradition of confrontation with the powers. Um, now, again, confrontation with the powers is, is an important missionary heritage as well. And we see in sub-Saharan Africa that confrontation goes on, although the apologetics there tends to take the form of spiritual warfare and of the uh, posing of a better Christian lifestyle compared to the one in the animist past. So again, confrontation can be there. It's sometimes quite straightforward confrontation. But the kind of macho strutting that I'm not happy about really does seem to be a post-fundamentalist insecurity overcompensating by getting a PhD in philosophy and then using the tools in that toolbox to make as much mischief as you can. 
or even not even having a PhD in philosophy. But one thing I've noticed is That's the best. Yeah, the best <laughs> ones have that. The worst ones have an MA from some seminary, and they think they can <laughs> the great issues in front of their audiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I that's what I noticed about um, a lot of apologists, kind of on maybe more of the popular level or or sort of these self proclaimed apologists um, tend to, in my mind, tend to be fundamentalists who have found a, a couple of analytical tools <laughs> to use, and it kind of is promoted as philosophy or promoted as a, apologetical engagement, um, but really, I think you're right in identifying it as kind of a militaristic or militant fundamentalism. But one thing that I've noticed too, um, I, I was very interested in apologetics all through my high school years and, you know, really looked a lot at this movement, read a whole bunch of books and everything. And one thing that I now notice looking back on it is this, um, this activity of platforming that happens. And so it, it goes something like this. There is this huge, really, really big, horrible threat to Christianity that's out there. And let me tell you how snarly and green and hairy it is. And this one's really big. You know, it's kind of like the, like a Marvel uh, preview where you thought that the villain in the last show was bad. Like you should see this one. Um, and it's kind of like this one's got all of the villains somehow combined into one. You know, um, and so. Uh, you need to come to my conference because in 24 hours, I'm going to tell you all of the jujitsu moves that you need to completely destroy and level this particular villain. Um, please register. Conference fee is $200. <laughs> Bring your entire church, <laughs> those sorts of things. And so I kind of jokingly call this as bootleg apologists. I, it leads me to wonder about kind of the ethics of platforming because it's very effective. They're, they pack churches. Uh, people are are driven by that. They're pulled in very effectively by that. But um, yeah, how, how would you encourage us to think about ethics of platforming and discern who are better voices to listen to? This is a function of what I've come to believe is an inescapable, even integral part of evangelicalism globally as well as evangelicalism in North America. And that is the very strong dynamic of populism. And by populism, I don't mean anything to do with the previous American president or with uh, alt-right or, or white supremacy. I mean something more generically sociological. Populism here is the appeal over the heads of established authorities to the population at large. So populism is a political idea that gains power from the appeal directly to the intuitive judgments of the people as they are, rather than working through their designated political leaders or educational leaders or religious leaders or anybody else, you appeal directly to the masses, so to speak. Now this seems very democratic and in a way it is. It seems also very honoring of ordinary people, which in a way it is. So there's a lot about it that is commendable. And there's a lot about it that is simply inescapably modern. It just is the way of the modern world. And so populism is really helpful in explaining a lot of the shape of evangelicalism since the 18th century, which was a popular movement, popular, you notice, like very widely uh, um, appreciated. 
And populism is the political appeal to the populace, so to speak. And that's what these apologists can do is to get just enough credentials to impress the uninformed. Master's degree sounds pretty good. Sounds like you've mastered your subject. Now, anybody who actually has earned a master's degree knows that by the time you've got your master's degree, you've figured out what your subject is. And now you're maybe ready to ask some good questions, but that's not the way the population generally sees it. You must be a master of your field. And they pull something out of the zeitgeist and say, here's postmodernism. That sounds weird. And let me tell you, it's not just weird, it's scary. Or now, of course, it's critical race theory, which is doing the work that postmodernism did about 10 years ago. It's the new, really horrible, scary thing that explains really all that's wrong with the world. So now, uh, yeah, indeed, come to my seminar and I will show you how terrifying and world destroying it is. And then also how you can destroy it with the following five easy moves. So you've really got it taped, Amber. I'm sorry for all the time that you must have spent in that world because you really have figured it out. And God bless you for escaping it. The, the, the problem here, of course, is, is isometric um, with the, um, oh, sorry, isomorphic with the um, problem we have in popular American religion generally, right? So we have people with no particular training in child psychology offering blog advice to thousands of other parents about how they should raise their children. We have people with no medical background telling people whether they should or shouldn't seek vaccinations. We've got people with very little theological background making pronouncements from pulpits in mega churches and they're charismatic and they're good looking and they have terrific sneakers. And this is what qualifies them, of course, to speak about the words of life. So what we're finding in apologetics, I'm suggesting is simply the same thing that we see in American Christianity and American popular religion generally. So to help people get past that, we need to help, actually the problem's even bigger, right? The problem is we have to help people generally figure out what is genuine expertise? How do I recognize it? How do I properly respond to it without neglecting the value of listening to the Vox Populi, you know, to listening properly to the, the common people of God, which have, has often been an important voice to rein in uh, snobby and uh, self-righteous uh, experts like myself. Um, so, so there is an important tension here. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul speaks about the body of Christ where we need everybody. We need everybody to play their part as an eye or an ear or a hand or a foot. And in particular, God has given us teachers. He has given us particular people who are gifted and called to teach. But then everybody in the pew is supposed to weigh carefully what they hear against what they know the word of God to be and to push back against false teachers. So there needs to be a, a somewhat complex dynamic of shared authority and shared respect. We are light years from figuring that out, it seems to me, in North American Christianity today. One of the things that I have seen just in my own story and, and kind of looking at the people around me is gr growing up as one of the teenagers who went to all of those, you know, worldview summer camps and all the different conferences so that I would then be prepared to give an answer to my atheist college professor who's arguing against the existence of God and then 
I can single-handedly take down this tenured professor in front of all of my classmates and just stump them with these arguments, you know, um, or I can understand the ins and outs of postmodernism and how terrible it is and how, you know, all the defeaters, right, for, for it. And then the reality is if you step one foot outside of that very small insular pond <laughs> and you actually engage with your tenured atheist professor, or you encounter an actual postmodernist, or you start reading beyond, you know, the particular books that you get in, in your Bible school program um, by strictly evangelical authors telling you what these other people think. Um, and then you start to realize, you know, it wasn't, it's not, it's not quite as snarly as it was portrayed to me. And uh, that tenured professor's arguments are not being defeated by this at all. Um, and actually there was a lot that wasn't said to me. And I have found particularly looking at my peers and then even myself thinking through these things, that's actually where the real crisis of faith comes in, right? It's not the exposure to the atheist or the encounter with the postmodernist. It's actually the disillusionment of, I was told this about them, but it's, I'm realizing that it's not true. So therefore, can I trust anything <laughs> that, that was told to me back in this other world. And it's easier logically to get there to say, no, apparently I can't. I'm just tired of that ideological warfare or whatever. And so now we're seeing this big move of ex-evangelical of people leaving. So in, in terms of, you know, the voice of the people, that's a, a huge response that's happening right now that I think is interesting to kind of attune to and to figure out, okay, what's going on. And, and I wonder how much of that method, that kind of fear mongering method actually has a lot to do with this counter react, this reaction in the ex-evangelical uh, phenomenon that we're seeing right now. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. When we present Christianity as a kind of plane, kind of a tabletop of truth, let's think of it as a glass tabletop of truth. Um, and all of this is true. All of this is justified by the Bible. One of the ironies of fundamentalism here is that it gets its name from defending the fundamentals of the faith. But in fundamentalism, everything's fundamental. Everything matters. All truth is God's truth. God never lies. It's all the same. And of course, as soon as you take a hammer and hit any part of that glass tabletop, it all shatters, right? We have this brittle form of faith that we are commending as true and good. So that as soon as I find out that my atheist professor has a good point, and even more disturbingly, when I find out that he's actually a good guy, this, is, this completely throws me off because I've been trained in a binary way of looking at the world. Everything is one or zero, off or on, good or bad, black or white, kingdom of light or kingdom of darkness. And we are setting up our young people to have their faith almost literally shattered because we have stressed what I would call this fundamentalist binary view of the world which also can have very sophisticated accents in even somebody like the Dutch Reformed tradition with an overemphasis on antithesis. Antithesis needs to be balanced with common grace. The idea that there is the world against God as well as the world of God, the two cities of Augustine, 
needs to be balanced with our common humanity that we are all created in God's image and all called by God to make shalom in the world. And therefore, God helps people make shalom in the world, even people who don't wear a cross or a fish on their t-shirts. Even they're called to make, even they are called to make shalom in the world, which is why they can produce pretty good chemistry and why their bridges stay up and why their TV shows are sometimes better than ours, like almost always better than ours. Why? Because God is at work in the world. And so, yes, there are ways in which the Christian gospel comes as antithesis, as a direct challenge to a world that is otherwise destined for death. That's true. I'm an evangelical. I believe in the evangel. At the same time, we live in a mixed field, as Jesus said, and the mixture goes right inside us. It's not just between those good people and those bad people, but I'm good and I'm bad, as Luther says. I'm simul justus et peccator. I am also a, a mixed person, and so is my professor, who's supposed to be the incarnation of all that's bad, and it turns out he's actually quite a good guy with a few points to make. So this really does come back to faulty theology, and I'm always gratified when I can make the point that theology isn't everything, but bad theology is much worse. And we do tend to live according to the ideas of the world we have in our heads. So let's get better ideas and we'll have better experiences. Is there some sense that um, I think about debate, right? I think about the heyday of debate back in the, to the early 2000s, right? So Amber, I was taking kids to the youth, my youth groups where I was taking them as a youth pastor to those different kind of events. You know, yeah, Gary Habermas, Josh McDowell, all these kind of guys that were presenting these things, and they're kind of raising up against the Sam Harris's of the day and, you know, the Chris Hitchens, Hitchens and all the kind of different things, and even like Bart Ehrman with his textual criticism stuff, because they were kind of setting into the popular level, you know, everywhere. They're just kind of big speakers. Their books were popular level, and there was this kind of like us versus them thing set up, and then the debates things happened. Is that I know it feeds all of this silliness, right? It, feel, it feeds all of the, like, why we do apologetics just to fight the other guy, just to have that answer, all that kind of stuff. Um, is, that, is that era over with? Is that helpful? Did it create foundational things for what you're doing now? Or is it connected? I think when you think about humble apologetics in the relational manner, you've talked about it. And even in your new book, Can I Believe, where you're actually saying, hesitancy with faith is great like just you know step into this it's it's a little christianity is wonky it's crazy it's got some stuff in it that it's hard to believe right um it seems like a different a different tactic for a different audience and things like that so i just love to hear what you're where it was and how you saw that landscape and went i don't like that or i was in that for a while and and now as you've moved out of it and into what you're doing with can i believe um, i'd love to hear your process I think that if we're going to engage in apologetics of this sort, the kind we're talking about now, the straightforward engagement of different views and worldviews, because apologetics can be other things, right? It can be acts of charity. It can be beautiful art. It can be uh, a good dinner party. There's lots of ways of attracting people and adding plausibility to the Christian gospel than just arguing about it. But if we are going to argue about it, then let's do it really well. And unfortunately, for too many of the professional apologists, it's been 
a version of college debating societies, uh, forensic debating, uh, or perhaps the law court where it's all it's, 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 it's one against the other. There can only be one winner. There has to be a loser. Uh, there has to be a directed verdict of some kind um, or direct verdict of some kind. And, and that's really not the mentality we are seeking as Christians, right? We're trying to win the friend, not just the argument. We're, we're trying to win over people. We're not trying to score points with the judges. And so we, we need to be thinking about the outcome that we want at the end of the debate. When people are on their way out of the hall, what do we want them to be saying to each other? What do we want them to be saying in their own minds? What do we want them to be saying to the Holy Spirit as he approaches each of these people in the privacy of their own reflection? What I better not be hoping they say is, boy, John Stackhouse sure is smart. What, I, what they better not be saying is, boy, arguments two, four, and six, those were real corkers, man. That, that was really impressive. Because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think of me. And it doesn't matter what they think of my arguments. It matters what they think of Jesus Christ. What matters is what they think of the gospel. So I better be doing that. And I better, in particular, be helping them think, you know, Christians aren't as bad as I thought they were. They're not as stupid as I thought they were. They're not as charmless as I thought they were. They're not as clumsy as I thought they were. They're not as mean as I thought they were. Maybe, in fact, Christianity is a different way of life that is appealing. Well, okay, now we're getting somewhere. But unfortunately, the, the very devotion to a kind of pure debating engagement um, cut away a lot of the humanity and the kind of social and psychological concerns about persuasion leaving only the bare bones of a kind of analytic philosophical brain against brain kind of combat, which appeals really strongly to a small minority of people in the population. It really appeals to engineers, it appeals to other applied scientists, and it appeals to analytic philosophers. And they love that stuff. And everybody else is actually repelled by it. They find it at least foreign, and mostly actually ugly. And so it's been a, a real shame that what is a legitimately useful form of intellectual discourse, analytic philosophy and its more vulgar, you know, popular versions, um, has become the norm. And, and even my friend Bill Craig, um, William Lane Craig, um, Bill, not surprisingly, was the captain of his debate team at Wheaton College, and that's the way he talks. And Bill is, in person, a charming, friendly, humble man. I've enjoyed every meal I've had with him. And then he turns into something else when he's on stage. Now, he's better than he used to be. He has grown in grace, and he's a lot more attractive than he used to be, because he's actually a genuinely attractive guy. But a lot of the stuff you can find online from Bill Craig is still him in what I call his robo-apologist mode. Sort of clanks onto the stage with all his armor up and he gets his big guns and it's, you know, 20 unanswerable questions in 20 minutes. Well, that's, that's not a conversation. It's not respectful of the audience's ability to process this much information. This is trying to win. 
And it seems to me you are losing most of your audience when you do that. I'm, I'm curious to, to follow up along the lines of, you know, what's motivating and driving a lot of, of these efforts to persuade in a particular way. Um, one thing that comes to mind that I think um, could be interesting to hear in terms of your personal areas of research and writing is the question of hell and uh, the motivation of this prospect of a traditional view of hell, eternal conscious torment. Of course, you're known for having written some materials defending an annihilationist view, which, which is sometimes called conditional immortality. Perhaps you might want to unpack what that means, but I'm, I'm particularly curious how that informs your apologetics or perhaps how some have maybe viewed your approach to apologetics as less than, as inferior, or as not, you know, up to up to the task, particularly because of your views on hell. Have you received that kind of pushback? Well, not a lot, although I can imagine somebody saying, well, because you don't think God uh, tortures people forever and ever, but instead, God tortures them as much as they deserve and no more, and then they're done. And I've deliberately put it in that provocative way because I because both of those views of hell are awful, right? I mean, I, th I think I think the latter one's true, but I, I wouldn't if it's true-ish, right? I don't think God tortures anybody. I think that people undergo the punishment that they have properly incurred, and that God, who is the guarantor of righteousness in the universe ensures that righteousness is done. So either suffering and death is placed on Jesus Christ on our behalf, and we enjoy salvation because of that, or we endure the suffering and death that is our due. So either Jesus pays for it or we pay for it. That's just good old evangelical doctrine, and I believe that. What I don't believe is that any finite human being can sin so much that she then deserves an infinity of, of uh, pain. I, that never makes sense to me, and I don't think the Bible actually is better understood that way. Now, when I come into the apologetic situation, I should be just as motivated as my Christian friend who believes in eternal conscious torment, because we both believe that hell is awful, and that hell is your final destination from which there's no escape unless you have previously put your faith in Jesus Christ, which case you don't go to hell, you, you get instead to go through the path of sanctification and eventually um, go to the, the new earth that's, that's to come. So in that sense, it's the same. And um, I would say that anybody who thinks that my evangelistic zeal is somehow lessened because I think that people are going to, my understanding of hell instead of theirs, just doesn't understand the situation. Same is true of my views on inclusivism. Because I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is busy in the church, but also beyond the church, bringing men and women, boys and girls to himself, any way he can around the world, including through dreams and visions and other kinds of wonderful things. Even though the normal way God brings us to himself is through the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of Christian churches, I believe the church is traditionally taught that way too. But again, that doesn't cut the missionary nerve because just because even if I believe the entire world was going to heaven, if, and if God had vouchsafed to me some revelation that says they're all going to heaven anyway, there's a lot more to the Christian life than a passport to heaven, right? I mean, that's why we do medical missions 
it's not just to evangelize, it's because we think helping people with terrible disease is a good way to spend your life. We, we engage in educational missions because we think it's actually better to be educated than ignorant. And we think people will have a better life if they're educated. So we, we put up schools, we put up hospitals, we, we engage in relief and development. Because even if, yes, you're eventually going to meet Jesus in heaven, it's best that you don't starve to death when you're seven years old. Like these are all good things that God calls, in fact, most people to. Most people are not called to be full-time evangelists. Most people are not called by God to be full-time missionaries. Most people are called by God to participate in God's global concern to improve the world and draw it all back to God's self. So these other views I may hold that may be softer than some traditional views might be don't make me any less zealous about missionary work or about the broader mission of God in the world. And anyway, we shouldn't hold to harsh views simply because they motivate people better, right? That, that's, that's really a terrible reason to hold Christian doctrine, is it will frighten people just a little bit more. Um, there's enough to be frightened about without us having to ratchet up our doctrine in a way that scripture, I think, doesn't justify. It's a great point. I've heard that a lot that uh, leaders will say, oh, mainline churches are, are losing people. They don't have members in their congregations because their doctrine is so soft that there's no reason to be there. But, you know, we have this this harsher doctrine. And so there's there's reason for numbers, which I I stepping back, of course, later thinking, wow, that's a convenient argument. <laughs> and it seems very manipulative, um, which kind of brings me to another question I wanted to ask. Um, really, we've asked some of our other guests this exact same question. And if you look at kind of the landscape in terms of the sorts of questions that people are asking now uh, that have to do with apologetics, for a while, there were definitely, um, there's definitely this presence of atheism of skepticism, right? I don't have enough faith to, or sorry, there's not enough evidence to believe in the resurrection or Christianity is just not rational enough or whatever. And so there was kind of this posture of skepticism. I'm thinking of like the Richard Dawkins types, right? Um, but now, at least from, from what I'm discerning, that's not, that's really kind of lost its, its moment in the sun. And really the issues have to do more with questions of suspicion. So an atheism of suspicion. Um, so it's not so much that there aren't enough proofs for the resurrection, but it's the presence of ideological oppression. It's the question of, is Christianity just, uh, is it actually ethical? Is it self-serving? Um, and so it, really these the hermeneutics of suspicion coming in and offering that critique. And so it was interesting when you mentioned the glass top Christianity and when something hits it, it all shatters because that's kind of the Nietzschean critique of, of Christianity, which I think is actually really, really effective in our day and age. And so the irony is the more we then press kind of this ideological approach to apologetics, the more it just confirms those, uh, those resistances of suspicion. So how should apologetics, or how have you thought about shifting apologetics in order to think honestly about those questions because they are good ones, those concerns? And then what do you think better ways of engaging might be? Yeah, we've really gone from Christians are stupid to Christians are wicked. And 
we haven't actually forgotten that Christians are stupid. Now they're wicked and stupid, whereas before they maybe just be stupid. But now they're, they're certainly both. They, they don't have good evidence for their views, and their views are awful. And not just their views. Their practices are awful, right? They abuse kids, and they abuse women, and they abuse black people, and they abuse uh, homosexual people, and they abuse trans people. And, you know, they're, they're just basically horrible, uh, abusive bigots. So this, this is a... Pretty steep public relations hill to climb uh, for Christians nowadays, no doubt. I think that part of what we need to understand then is that different kinds of problems need appropriate kinds of solutions. This is something I try to do in Can I Believe, this new book. And what I try to recommend also in Humble Apologetics is that if somebody's got a genuine intellectual concern, then give them a good argument. But often, what people say is their main beef with Christianity isn't, right? And we have to ask them the second and third and fourth question and say, well, why does that matter to you? And why does that matter to you? And why does that matter to you? And then it turns out because I was abused by my youth pastor or because my parents were Christians and they treated me like crap or because I found out my pastor was actually stealing from the church or we don't you start finding out that there's pain here and there's there's injury well you know if you're if you're involved in the practice of medicine it's helpful to describe the problem to your patient and to describe the solution you're going to give but the, what they really need is medicine right <laughs> so it's all very well to give the explanation but what they really need is not an argument for why medicine is a good idea give me the darn medicine uh, and the same thing is true if somebody's sad. I mean, you can give them the psychology of it, but sometimes people just need a blanket. Sometimes they just need someone to sing them a lullaby or hold their hand. So you've got to match the solution to the problem. You've got to match the answer to the question. Um, and the church collectively is very well equipped to do that because we've got lots of kinds of people. We've got people who are really good at hospitality. We've got people who are really good at tender care. We've got people who are really good at patient listening. And the problem is we've, we've reduced our public Christians to people who can talk and sing um, really well. But we got more to offer, like a lot more to offer. And it seems to me that this is one of the main structural problems. And here the historian and sociologist in me once again addresses the theologian and apologist in me and says, well, if your public presentation of Christianity is a really well choreographed show on Sunday mornings, no wonder people think that all you can do is sing and dance and talk. But if in fact your Christian community life is mostly in living rooms and around tables, and out where people are hurting, oh, okay, so it's not a show. It's really a way of life and a community centered on this person you guys keep talking about. You keep talking about Jesus as if he's not dead. You keep talking about Jesus as if you talked to him this morning. Now, that's either amazing good news or you guys are psychotic. If I, if I found a group of people who thought they'd talk to Napoleon every morning before breakfast, you'd say, these people have just lost their marbles. You people speak about Jesus as if he's not just an inspiring character in the past, as if he is your friend and master right now. And yet you don't seem to be psychotic. What's going on?
that's where the church as the church is the most important apologetic we have. And in the nature of the case, it would be because it is about a community following Jesus. It isn't about a really cool argument that finally convinces you. Yeah, that's so good. We had a conversation with Gregory Thornbury in one of our previous um, series, and he gave us something that is really transitioned us quite well into this apologetic series. And he talked about kayfabe, which is in the in the wrestling world. It's essentially where something looks like it's real, like a fight looks like it's really actually happening. But in reality, it's like 98% choreographed. <laughs> Um, and occasionally something goes wrong in the choreograph or whatever. And, and then that's called a shoot when it's actually really happening and, and the outcome isn't already determined. And so he was saying a lot of Christian art, but then also Christian apologetics would absolutely fit into this where it's setting up, you know, we call it like setting up straw men that you then burn and have lots of fireworks to show for it, you know? Um, but it's, it's kayfabe in like, let me simulate this, this conversation with this professor or whatever. Um, let me put on this kind of display and, but then really it's just choreographed. The ending's already written and it actually has nothing to do with real life at all. Um, so I, it made me think of that when you were describing that practice. Well, I'm always suspicious of people who purport to tell me what those people over there think when the person telling me that seems to have no sympathy at all for what those people over there think or do. Say, well, what are the odds that you really have heard them well? Maybe, maybe, but the, the, the more antipathetic you are to them, the less likely you're hearing them well, sort of basic hermeneutics. And we, we do have to practice better listening, don't we? So that we really are listening, not only to what they're actually saying, rather than what we think or hope they're saying, but then also to what they're saying under that. Like, why do you feel this way? Why do you feel so strongly about this? Um, where's, where's your motive? Um, and what do you care about? I find when, I, when I'm in an academic committee meeting, every bit as much as when I'm involved in a debate, what I really wanna know is where, what are the fears in the room? What are you most afraid is gonna happen? What are you most trying to make not happen? And what do you want to happen? So going back to Josh's question about debates, I've enjoyed a number of public encounters, Josh, that look like debates. They might have been, been called debates, but I've tried to call them discussions or conversations. And these with people who very clearly disagree with me. There have been your garden variety, secular humanist, atheist, philosophy professors on several campuses. I was at Stanford once and had a Muslim and a Hindu on stage, and we were supposed to not just have a pleasant tea party, but actually go at each other. We ended up, I mean, the Muslim guy and I had a blast, actually, um, at the end of, of our 45 minutes of arguing back and forth. I said, let me see if you agree with this. I think that your faith leaves way too many things out, and you think my faith is needlessly complicated. And he said, yeah, that's about right, what you thought about. Right? But the Hindu guy kept trying to trump the two of us by saying, well, yes, those are your particular paths up the mountain, but actually all paths lead up to the mountain. It was a kind of um, Radha Krishnan, all roads lead to God kind of Hinduism. And I turned on him and said, well, how did you get in the helicopter? 
like the rest of us are making our way up the hill. How did you get into a helicopter by which you think you have this privileged view that can see everybody else's? I, I would think that your views, like you're down here on the mountain with the rest of us. And the Muslim guy goes, yes, right on. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, it was a, a, a kind of a, a nice moment to blow up that, that lovely fantasy that there is this one privileged position where everything is beautiful, itch in its own way. Nice if that were true, I suppose, but downstream of 9-11, not too many people think that anymore. And it's a better era, in fact, to say, yeah, some religions actually are bad. Some philosophies are bad. How can we find out the good ones? Well, to come back to Amber's question, I want to see not just what you have to say, but how you live, because religion is about how we live. It's not just about figuring out the world. This is why I like the title of your book, can I believe because you're you're ending it with a question mark. So essentially what you're doing is you're not saying you must believe. <laughs> uh, it's not an, it's not asserting a particular um, well, it's not an epistemic standoff, right? And it's not a way of saying I'm I'm giving you these proofs that are indefeasible. And then uh, if you do not accept it, then it means that you don't have intellectual integrity or you have other willful reasons why you're not taking it. That that often is is how it's presented. <laughs> well, um, it's really like, you call me stupid and wicked, you're stupid and wicked. <laughs> yeah, I've given this to you and, and you're rejecting it. And so that's that's clearly your problem. You know, you're, you're stupid and wicked type of thing. And, uh, but instead we, we've seen this with some of the other guests on this series is there seems to be a transition from, you know, this epistemic standoff, this imposition of a particular ideology that is deemed superior to others. And instead it's recast in terms of a question that the aim of which is to open up new possibilities, right? So it's, it's invitational. It's a way of saying, here's a different way of seeing things and here's a different mode of being. And here's a possibility that I'm going to open up for you that maybe you didn't have in your mind before. So it's, it's not so much, you must believe this or else, you know, make them intellectually say uncle, as much as it's helping them to see something that they otherwise would not or had not been able to see before and inviting them into that. And, and this is why the church and the community of faith is so important to that because I think a lot of times under the other model, we sort of outsource that to the quote unquote professional apologist to be able to do that kind of work. And the church is sort of relieved of, of that responsibility or people within the church who happen to be interested in apologetics, what they do to prepare is to buy all of the books and mark them up and memorize the arguments. When I think what you're saying and what some of our other guests have said is, it's actually to live a life of hope in a hostile and fragmented world. That is that thing that people can't necessarily just erase or ignore. Mm -hmm. And and this is why I like the subtitle of your book because the the whole Christianity for the hesitant thing, right? It, the the just the way you focus your book and you start and you say here's intellectual arguments, but then you narrow it to relational things and you start walking down into that. So it's okay to be hesitant. It's okay to approach, you know, you, you're engaging people that are intellectual and want to step into it and say, what's this Christianity thing all about, but kind of hold back a little bit because you're not just fighting people that are doubting. You're not just proving the thing that are right. You're stepping into a conversation and, and it's an, it's a more intellectual conversation with this book too. It's, it's kind of a little higher brow, right? Is it, yeah. The kind of yeah. I mean, you should be hesitant. I mean, you if 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 you're understanding what the Christian gospel 
is about, you should be hesitant because it's a big ask. I mean, Jesus says, count the cost. Like this isn't some small thing. I'm not just asking you to find a new way of solving differential equations, right? I'm, I'm asking you to think about a whole new life, a, a new morality, a, a new aesthetic in some ways. I'm actually, as Jesus very powerfully says, I'm asking you to change families. I mean, there's nothing more basic and more challenging than that. You're going to have to put your church family above even your own family. You have to care for your own family, but your church family is going to be your number one social community. Like this is a big ask. So you should be hesitant if you understand what's going on. I, I do think that, Amber, I am asking for more wisdom about rhetoric, about the way we try to persuade people. And in this moment, um, there is a market for people who have all the answers and who want to bombastically tell little people how to think. There sure is um, in politics and in religion. There is a market for that. But the people who are listening to this and, and you yourselves would say, that's not for me. Um, we do want to invite people into new possibilities. At the same time, of course, I, I'm an old-fashioned evangelical. I, I think at the end of those questions is the answer is the way, the truth, and the life. I really do think that Jesus is the answer to everything that's wrong. So it is a breathtakingly huge meta-narrative that the gospel offers, um, full of God, the world, and everything. But let's not lead with that. That's, again, too big an ask. How about you just sit with me a little bit. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about what you think about. Let's talk about what I think about. And, and let's see if there are some promising lines of inquiry rather than, okay, now here's why you're wrong, deficient, and going to hell. And here's how I, from my lofty position, can help you, little person, get where you need to go, right? There's everything about that is so creepy and wrong that you think, even if somebody is persuaded of that and they climb aboard, the kind of Christianity that's going to be waiting for them on the other side is not going to be a very good form of Christianity. It's going to be authoritarian. It's going to be pinched. It's going to be intellectualistic. It's not going to be the full life that the Holy Spirit gives us. So we, we really do need to abandon this, this militant and macho reduction of Christianity to a set of really good ideas that are better than yours. Yeah, that's a theme that we've also traced in this series too, in terms of what is faith? Like, what are we actually inviting people into? And, and then if we back up from there, that helps inform the runway to get to that, if you will. And so if faith is simply intellectual assent to certain doctrines or concepts or whatever, then it does make sense that I'm gonna combat in, in this particular kind of way. Um, but the problem with that is, as you said, you're converting someone to an ideology, uh, or you're converting someone to some kind of a notion of intellectual superiority over and against other things. And then that's a brittle conception of faith. And the moment that it becomes evident that it's not intellectually superior or something, then they're, they're gone. Right. Um, so you can have these fast conversions, but it's, it's this question of what are you actually converting them to? And is that genuine faith? If, if the initial presentation doesn't lead naturally to the actual thing you're wanting them to accept, it's really a kind of bait and switch. If Christianity seems like 
a groovy, exciting, power-filled, experience-rich high with Jesus all the time. And then you find out that a lot of it's slogging and a lot of it's tough and a lot of it's confusing. Well, just a second. Now, I went to your initial show and you promised me this, and this is what I got instead. <coughs> you guys are all, all young academics. And there's an old joke, which I can now finally tell you now that you've all got your PhDs and you're getting into work of various sorts. There's, there's an old joke that basically says, this, this guy shows up uh, at, at, at the pearly gates and then he's offered his reward and opens this room and there's this paradisical garden and there's wonderful food and drink and beautiful music and fascinating people. And they said, this is, this is all for you. Um, and um, he said, this is great. And, and he, he sleeps and next day he wakes up and he's in this place of smoke and heat and horrible people bothering him all the time. And he said, what happened? I thought I was in this wonderful place. He said, yeah, you were candidating. Now you got the job. This, this is a ser serious problem. Like you, the, the initial approach has to be, of course, organic with what we're doing later on. And, and I'm impressed at how Jesus is always kind. He's always generous, but he, he's always demanding. And, you know, it's kind of, I'll try to make it easy for you, but I, I, I can only make it as easy as I can because this is a real confrontation. And at some point, it really is life or death. You either follow me or you don't. It really is binary. But it really needs to be about following Jesus or not, right? Rather than following my church or my tradition or my particular way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah it's like we, there's already so much about Christ, our Christian faith that is offensive Uh heaven forbid we add to that offense <laughs> by yeah. the way that we go about it or adding more things to it. Because at the end of the day, Christ, the God, man, the call to pick up your cross and follow him, that's, that's exceedingly offensive. And that is confrontational and in the deepest, most personal sense um, that there possibly could be. But it is interesting, isn't it? That the Jesus takes quite a while to introduce his own disciples to that. You know, he really does front load his disciples training with God's power and God's grace, God's love, God's expansive care for children and women and ethnicities other than Jewish. And really only after they've seen this whole picture and at Caesarea Philippi, right? Peter finally says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he starts to tell them that he's gonna to have to suffer and be betrayed and die and get into the whole atonement thing. Now you think as Jews with the whole sacrificial system behind them, he could have led with that. You know, I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember John the Baptist called me that? Well, let me explain substitutionary atonement to you. But, but he doesn't do that. Now, I, I think substitutionary atonement is one of the great truths in the world. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's part of the core of the Bible's message from really from Torah on through to, to Hebrews about how Jesus looks after us, but you don't lead with that, right? And you don't try to convince people of that. You, you start where people are and Jesus does a wonderful job of that for us. Yeah, and by not leading with that, I think that doesn't mean a kind of, here's the nice presentation. And then when you get into it, we'll tell you what it's really like. I right. think it's more of, you need to know the person that you will follow. Yes. But you need to know me, uh, and the person who I am 
and what I am like so that you know who you are following. Um, yes, that's really well said, Deborah. Like now that you know me and you're with this company of people, um, now here's how it works. Here, and we're going to introduce you now to here's how we got here. And at any point in the story, you may decide to get off, but but we're but it's the same story, and we're just enriching it for you. That's how just that's how discipleship should work. Yeah, reminds me of that saying. Uh, you know, what you win them with is what you win them to. Yes, nicely put. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is the challenge I had then in writing this book because a, a friend of mine is the editor in chief of a big. American publishing house. And he and I had talked for 20 years about my writing an apologetic for him that would be popular and would um, make me money for the first time in my life in royalties and would actually get out to a much broader audience. And when it finally seemed to be the time in my life that God wanted me to finally write this thing, in which I'd been connect, you know, collecting notes for years, um, I sent him a copy of the proposal and I sent a copy to my a current editor of the publishing house I've been with for a while now. And I asked them as friends, I said, I don't want you to look at this as editors. I'm not formally sending this to you. I want, I want you, you know, Mickey, I want you to give me your advice. Cynthia, I want you to give me your advice because I can go one of two ways with this. And Mickey said, if you want to write for me, you're going to have to really make this more popular. And Cynthia said, if you want to write it for me, that's just what I want. And Mickey said, yep. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, like, like the way you propose this, that's for Cynthia's house, not for my house. And again, this is partly where we all have to decide, am I a foot or am I a hand or an eye or an ear? I do like writing and broadcasting to popular audiences, and I've had some success doing that. But it seemed to me the need that was tugging on my heart, and I really have to put it in those terms, In other words, I don't think that what I did was more important than the other thing. I don't think I made the more Christian choice. What was tugging at my heart were my smart friends who read The Atlantic or The New Yorker or other kinds of of, of periodicals, and they want a book that talks to them that way. And so that meant giving up sales by probably a, a whole order of magnitude right? Like Mickey's books sell in the tens of thousands. Cynthia's books, if they sell well, they sell in the thousands because she's, right, she's the editor for an academic press. But I felt that what I could maybe do that not that many people, not as many people could do, and what I wanted to do was to write to that smaller audience. Because I think there are other talented people who want to try to reach that bigger audience and, you know, God bless them. But when you write for the kind of audience I'm writing for, it's it's a little bit narrower needle to thread um, in terms of what jokes you make, in terms of what references you give, right? In terms of the vocabulary you use. And that's where I'd say each of us uh, need to try to discern before God, what are my particular strengths? Who am I? Who are the audiences I need to reach? I think part of what's... Um, pathological about the contemporary apologetics culture is the idea that one size fits all and you have to train to be an apologist that can take on all comers. Well, you know, unless your name is Al Planiger or maybe Bill Craig, you probably can't and you don't have to. You are responsible. I'm responsible for my neighbors. Who are the people near me? Who are the people God has called and equipped me to speak to? How can I become a better version of myself 
so that I can reach them rather than feeling I have to learn 20 answers to 20 impossible questions. What are the one or two or three that my friends care about? And let me see if I can become really good at helping them think about those. Dr. Stackhouse, thank you so much for joining us today and for all that you shared with us about this more relational approach to apologetics. Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for these uh, good questions. I can see that we feel strongly about the same things and uh, I'm glad your listeners can get some encouragement because a lot of them are probably thinking, I don't really want to go down that road. Well, there's another road to go down. I think it's a, it's a little better one. Thank you.